0: It was late March of 1996, and a storm, the night before, had whipped up the Hudson River and sent all kinds of treasures careening toward the beach near Miller Field on Staten Island. As a kid, you know certain things. The world is always different after a storm, and if you don't go out immediately and explore, you might miss something. I suppose the same could be said of the world as an adult. It's just... a different kind of storm most of the time. But back to Staten Island. Three kids were wandering along the beach, picking up old bottles and bicycle parts, perhaps a fish skeleton or a long-forgotten watch band, your average shoreline treasures, when they noticed a large, sealed, utility-grade cardboard box. Jackpot, they thought. The box looked large enough to have originally held a television set. Though the kids doubted there was still a TV in there, as they walked closer, they noticed that it was sealed, which meant that whatever was in there was worth something. Immediately as a kid, you think, maybe it's money, maybe it's valuables, maybe it's the long-forgotten belongings of a mysterious 18th century sea captain. Who knows? A closed box is a question, and kids never miss out on the opportunity to answer a question. As they approached the box slowly, everyone speculated as to what they would discover, and I imagine agreed to split up their spoils evenly. But, for all the chances there were to find something spectacular, there was also the chance that it was something gross. Maybe someone had buried their dog and the storm kicked it up. Maybe it was just junk that someone was trying to throw away. Maybe it was food that had been in the water all that time. The thought of all these things made them hesitant. So upon approaching the box, they had grabbed some sticks, and instead of opening it with their hands, like savages, they poked at it, like any respectable kid would. The box was tough-grade cardboard, but it had spent a considerable amount of time in the water, and so the pokes quickly formed holes. The small holes turned to bigger holes, and the contents of the box threatened to escape. It was dark in there, but suddenly a shape seemed familiar. It looked like... five fingers and a palm. It was so lifelike you almost wanted to wave back. A store mannequin, perhaps? No, no mannequin would bend like that. No mannequin would go waterlogged and gray, and no mannequin would jiggle around with the motion of the box. The kids no longer wanted an answer to the question. They ran from the beach to the nearest phone and called the police. They had not found a treasure. They had not found the belongings of an old sea captain or even someone's discarded pet carcass. They had found a body. This was the kind of event you only see in movies and yet here it was unfurling before their very eyes. At that time though, no one could ever imagine that the events that brought these kids into their very own stand by me moment were not a local dispute or a crime of passion. For now, though, all local law enforcement knew was that they had a body. And with little to no evidence to go on, they were gonna have a hell of a time figuring out who it was. So how do we get here? A box on the shores of Staten Island at nary a speck of glitter or a smear of lipstick in sight? When I promised you the glitter of the big city lights? Well, dear listener, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good
1: intentions. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And we would be dead.
0: Welcome back. I hope everyone enjoyed their holiday and that we're all ready to start off 2021 with a party. Oh, yeah. Yes. Appropriately socially distanced, of course. We had to take a little time off last week so that Leslie could nurse her extreme workout injury. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) For anyone who doesn't
1: read our social media (laughs) posts, can you tell our fiends what happened? Oh man! So <laughs> it sounds so much cooler than I probably looked, but there are illustrations. <laughs> Don't worry. Sure. So I was working out, uh, doing my beach body workout. They're not a sponsor, but maybe they will be. Mm. <laughs> um, and I was doing a burpee lightning bolt. Lightning bolt! Yeah, you're so strong. I know. <sighs> um, and I kicked the table behind me, and uh, my my toe went the other way. <laughs> Extreme workout injury. Extreme workout, yeah. So now I got a little boot and it's fun. Yeah. It's a great time. Hobbling around. Yeah. Making it happen. But uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a bummer. I was, you know, trying to get in shape for that wedding dress fitting. <laughs> now I have to like watch my diet. Whatever. I saw you
0: put on your wedding dress and it That's fits true. fine. You're fine. I know. I wanted like two sizes lower
1: though. No. I wanted to make that seamstress work. <laughs> You're actually just being kind to her. I am, yeah. I just wanted to give her a job. I like it. <laughs> well, thank goodness
0: you're on the med now and we're back in action with lots of new tricks up our sleeves for 2021. There are so many cases we want to share with you, so many new creative projects and collaborations we've talked about bringing to the table, and we can't do it without your help. First, if you want to see any contact that includes our faces, we're going to need a little boost. The holidays are stressful for everyone, and we could really use some rejuvenating validation to restore our sparkle and glow. So if you have not done so already, please head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It really does make all the difference in the world, and that chalice of baby's blood is suspiciously empty.
1: My goal this year Mm -hmm. is to work on changing that four-star to a five-star.
0: Who (laughs) four-starred
1: us? We did it once. We're going to do it again. I know. We did do it once. <laughs>
0: Listen, it's okay if you 4 start yeah, us fine. as long as you're still listening.
1: Or just like tell us why. How can we improve? I, I would like to know. Yeah. We're here to make your life fun. It's only our first year, so.
0: That's true. And we I, haven't even
1: hit the year mark yet. I'm surprised that we don't have more, so.
0: <laughs> don't give us more. Don't give
1: us more. No, sorry. <laughs> Take that out, John.
0: <laughs> anyway... It really does make all the difference when you leave reviews and ratings. Um, second, if you have a couple of dollars to spare, please check out We Would Be Dead on Patreon. For just a tiny monthly donation, you can get your own on air toast, access to our exclusive live campfire stories, our monthly additional podcast cast. Podkiss? Oh,
1: yeah. We're not kissing
0: you. Maybe we are. <laughs> I don't Sometimes. know how much
1: day is coming up. <laughs> how much are you donating? In COVID times, not enough. <laughs> Nothing. Well, well. It's 150 for the test, so. <laughs> more than that. Yeah. <laughs> okay.
0: Our monthly additional podcast, 30-Minute Horror Movies, which we did squeeze in in December. So, patrons, if you haven't checked out our 30-Minute uh, Ginger Dead Man, please do that. Discount on our merchandise and more. Lastly, if all of that is a little overwhelming, you can always support We Would Be Dead by sharing anything we post. Or you can post a screen grab to your Instagram story when you're listening to your favorite episode. That also helps us out. Anything to get the word out there, we appreciate and I think that's all of the announcements, unless you have anything to add.
1: No, just my foot. We talked about your foot. We did. We yeah. got it in there. We got it in.
0: Your extreme <laughs> workout injury. Oh. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: yes. Okay, then. On with the show. This week, we are taking a trip back to the gritty and glamorous club scene in the 90s in New York City. We're talking about the rise of the club kids and the horrific murder of Andre Angel Melendez by recently deceased club kid king, Michael Allig. This case has logged a lot of hours in my head. (laughs) Not only because I so vividly remember seeing the club kids on the Jenny Jones show, but also because of its ties to important creative and artistic movements, the evolution of several countercultures, and because Party Monster is a fucking great movie. And I have always been a devoted fan of adult Macaulay Culkin. For sure. I will fight. <laughs> I liked Party Monster. It was so panned. People hated it so much. But I we talked about this extensively. And I truly think it's because the people who watched it had no idea who those characters were based on.
1: Right. Right. Yeah, now knowing when it came out and everything. Mm-hmm. They were just like,
0: oh, Macaulay Culkin's doing a bad gay impression. no. Macaulay Culkin is accurately impersonating the man who did these things.
1: Right. I mean, did anyone say that about Seth Green? Because I felt like he, w- I mean, he did his act. I think James St. James as well. was more visible at the time. Oh, well, maybe. So maybe they just yeah, could connect those two. The movie
0: is also based on his book. And so he probably did press for it. So mm-hmm. I imagine people were like, oh, this guy is actually like that. I gotcha. But Michael Alec was in jail. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't, I mean, you had to look for interviews and stuff with him because i remember when i would look this stuff up i was in college mm-hmm. looking it up on the internet in a computer lab and right. not everybody was scrolling through their phones at a moment's notice being able to be like i have a question right you know <laughs> ask so, jeeves yeah oh no <laughs> so you really did have to try anyway i know you you have memories of like these kids too they were just absolutely there yeah I read endless articles, blogs, and interviews about Michael Alleg when I was in college. I couldn't get enough. I've always been fascinated by the point at which intelligence and insanity meet, and I think a lot of this Mm -hmm. teeters right right there. And the thought of, like, what kind of person can draw the world in with their insane charisma, start an entire counterculture, and then end so horribly? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, pretty much only Michael. Sadly or not sadly, depending on your view of him when this episode is over, Michael was found dead of a heroin overdose in his apartment this past Christmas Day, and it was then that I knew the time had come for us to cover him. So to start, everything I told you in the opening this week actually happened. That was just like a straight-up report. A trio of children did discover a body in a television box on the Staten Island shores of the Hudson River in late March of 1996. But it would be six more months before authorities would be able to discover who exactly the body was. As it turned out, they were simply looking in the wrong place. For this crime had occurred in the heart of New York City and simply happened to blow ashore on the tailwind of a tropical storm somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah, so I found that pretty interesting. Staten Island authorities had no missing persons attached to the body, no reports of any violence that resembled this crime in any way, and no positive ID factors on the body. Remember, it's 1996. We're not as good at DNA. There aren't, like, ancestry records of everyone in the world. Right. And so they really had little to nothing to go on. But had they jumped on the ferry and asked their big city counterparts what they thought, the information would have come pouring out. hmm And this is not to say I blame them or think they made an error. There was no way the Staten Island police could possibly know that this wasn't a homegrown crime. But before we get to what happened to Angel and how he ended up in an island on a different island. I'm sorry. Aren't they all islands? (laughs) And why he was in pieces because he was in pieces. Mm -hmm. We have to go back and explore the world he so desperately wanted to inhabit. So a note. I'd like to identify my sources immediately when it comes to this case and encourage you to check them out for yourself because they are plentiful in this case, and you have a couple too. Um, so mine were uh, – I drew heavily from the documentaries Glory in Life and Times of Michael Alec, and its predecessor, the original Party Monster, the Shockumentary, which is totally gone now. You cannot find it anywhere. I saw it a great many years ago.
1: They still have DVDs for sale, so you can Amazon doesn't even know. Oh, that's where I saw it. I could have gotten like a used DVD Oh, of it. really? Because yeah. when I saw it, it was like
0: no, none are available.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Maybe, Maybe they bought that one. Maybe they did. I, you could probably eBay it or something, but it's not – you can't find it on any like sort of legal internet mm-hmm. <laughs> sites or anything. <laughs> um, and if you do, go ahead and watch it and post it for the rest of us because it is fascinating. And it was filmed two years after – Well. It was released two years after it happened. Right. So this is like immediately in the wake of this crime. So it's interesting to see all the people then. I also read extensively from Michael Musto's Village Voice and New York um, Post columns, uh, the book Disco Bloodbath by James St. James, and a variety of Michael's prison interviews, the World of Wonder Report, and Michael's own social media accounts. It's a lot this week, you guys. Yeah, Michael had Twitter. Michael had a YouTube show with Ernie Glam for a while. You can find him. You can see them, but like I will provide links in the show notes to all of these things. And what what were your sources? What just um, while we're listing?
1: Yeah, um, mostly mine came from uh, the Limelight documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, that is based off of the book by uh, Frank Owen, uh, Clubland. Okay. Um, and that was really interesting. That one I found on Tubi. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's anywhere you can rent it too, but it was free on Tubi. Yeah, I think I watched the Glory Hayes one.
0: Oh, Glory Days. On Tubi as well. Yeah. That one's easy to find. Uh, so, yeah, if you want to read or watch more, and I recommend highly that you do so because this world is enormous and impossible for us to cover in an hour or two. Mm-hmm. The breath is just astonishing. So go do your own research and, um, and enjoy it because as horrible as this crime is, the world is fascinating. So where to begin? Well, no one starts their life in infamy, and so neither did Michael. Michael Alec was born on April 29, 1966 in South Bend, Indiana, which is as wonder of a beginning as anyone could dream up. He was the second of two sons, born to computer programmer John Alec and German import Elke Alec. His mother appears in, like, a lot of interviews and actually was, like, in the club with him at times. Her accent is delightful.
1: Can you do it? No, I'm not good at that one. Okay. <laughs> but... The woman who plays her in Party Monster is also very accurate. Yes, yeah, she was great. That
0: is precisely what she sounds like. <laughs> so watch it. It's fun. Elka had moved to the United States to marry John. Michael and his brother David grew up in a rather normal home. David would go on to stay in South Bend to make a life for himself. He has interviewed in Glory Days and could not be like more normal and well-adjusted. He's just like a dude. Sometimes two completely different people can come from the same parents, and occasionally some of it truly is nature. The Alex, John, and Elka would divorce when Michael was four, but there was no word on the divorce being particularly nasty. There's also no word that it wasn't, but I don't want to speculate. What I can say is that afterward Michael's father would rarely make an appearance in his life. Michael was an exceptionally intelligent child and went on to receive straight A's in all of his classes throughout high school. He attended Penn High School and graduated in the top 8% of his class. Though Michael was academically quite successful, the same cannot be said for his social life. South Bend is a deeply white, deeply Midwestern place and didn't exactly take kindly to a young homosexual man. In fact, South Bend itself was once home to a rather large chapter of the KKK. And not because they wanted to go after the black people in South Bend, but because South Bend was also home to Notre Dame University and the KKK was also ardently anti-Catholic. Right. So they were so white that even the KKK went after other white people there. (laughs) Child. Yeah. So that might give you a little glimpse into how South Bend felt about any kind of diversity in the 60s and 70s. Mm
1: -hmm. Not great. It wasn't he kind of like Wasn't he openly gay in high school? Yeah, he was. Though more recently,
0: South Bend has brought us openly gay and successful politician Mayor Pete. We love Mayor Pete. We have to remember that he's my age. He was born in 1981 Mm -hmm. and therefore grew up in a different time than Michael Alec. Michael was relentlessly bullied for his homosexuality, though it is not outwardly stated based on his actions. It's so funny we just said that. I believe that he was out at a rather early age. Mm -hmm. I know he was out in high school, but it may have even been sooner Mm -hmm. than that. And he paid the price for it. Therefore, young Michael set his sights on leaving South Bend as soon as possible and never looking back. Mm -hmm. Michael graduated high school in 1984 during the tail end of the Andy Warhol era in New York. And according to some, Andy's death three years later would leave the hole in New York City nightlife that Michael would go on to fill. Warhol had used his studio, The Factory, to bring together the intellectual, the artistic, the glamorous, the beautiful, the offbeat, and the downright bizarre. And from this soup of celebrity potential, he created his own bizarre brand of fame. Warhol's superstars, they were called. And they originated the idea of being famous for being famous, which we have a lot of now. Right. But before the internet, you had to try a little harder. (laughs) They didn't need to do anything. They simply needed to be in this environment, and sometimes in Studio 54, and the world paid attention. They were the universal in-crowd and the inspiration for Warhol's most famous and prophetic statement, in the future, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. A lot of these superstars achieved their status as cultural elite simply by being invited to the party, because the party was awfully well-documented. Gossip columnists and nightlife photographers couldn't get enough of Warhol superstars, and so they were in every grocery checkout line rag across the country. So you could see pictures of them being fabulous in a studio or in Studio 54 and their shenanigans, and you could be a mom in South Bend. Right. And you knew that was something that happened in great big New York City.
1: <laughs> my, my. So
0: <laughs> fancy. Look at those crazy folks. And now a word about New York City in the early 80s because we think New York and we see New York as it is today, which is wealthy and beautiful and well-developed. But it wasn't then. Mm-hmm. It was dangerous. New York was not known for being
1: an apex of the wealthy. Do you remember when New York was dangerous? I remember. I was thinking about this and because we used to go constantly. I mm-hmm. We were very close in Connecticut. So um, I remember – we would have specific spots that we would just stay in. Me too. And then there was a change. Like, now I I feel like, oh, I can just, like, go on a train and go myself. Yeah. But there – I mean, it took a while even in high school. I was like, oh, I can't just go to New York. Same. And I was in high school five years before you. mm -hmm. So New York was like, you better watch
0: out. It's dangerous. Yeah. And I remember – because I grew up about – an hour from the city. Mm-hmm. So all of our field trips were either Philly or New York based. And right. my parents were always like, you're going to be in New York. It's going to be scary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah,
1: like you would just get off the bus right where you had to yeah. go and get back on the bus and mm-hmm. get off the bus right where you had to Absolutely. go.
0: Absolutely. It was like right – if you were like mm-hmm. going to see a show, it was like right at the theater. You did yeah. not walk around. Or if we did, it was like to one location. Mm-hmm. We went to Even like- just
1: the home – like walking by homeless people. I remember with my parents, we mm-hmm. would be – a lot more close to each yeah. other, and now we're just like, whatever, just walking mm-hmm. by, saying hi to people. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very different.
0: Mm-hmm. Y- you mean, there was Wall Street and Park Avenue and stuff, right. but everywhere else was kind of a nightmare. You didn't walk blocks. No, you didn't. Mm-mm. There were burned out buildings all over, and prostitutes and drug addicts ran as freely and openly through the streets as pigeons and mice. Times Square was also trashy back then. Yep. It was all, like, porn theaters and prostitutes. I remember
1: being like, what's that? My dad was like, don't look.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was all, like, billboards that were, like, triple X and stuff. I totally remember that, too. Mm -hmm. It's gone now, obviously. But that was a very different time. And this combination of a rich cultural underground but dangerous and crime-ridden exterior made it a mecca for the young and the artistic. And that is precisely what drew Michael towards its neon glow. Michael was accepted to Fordham University after graduating in 1984, and he packed up his bags and headed to the big city. Well, the Bronx, but that's close enough. Fordham is also nothing to sneeze at. Mm -mm. It is rigorously academically competitive, and in 2018, it was named one of the most prestigious universities in the country, just teetering on the edge of the Ivy League. Students have to maintain a high school grade point average of over 3.6 to even be considered for admission.
1: That's where I wanted to go.
0: Fordham? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I— Um, wanted to apply to Fordham Lincoln Center, which is like their art school, but I don't think I ended up auditioning there. I don't remember.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to go. That would have been if I did want to live in the city, but Mm -hmm. then I went wildly different, but.
0: You went in another direction altogether? That's Mm -hmm. fine. Michael studied architecture at Fordham briefly, which is like, where did that come from? Well, I guess it's like artistic and it's design based. Yeah. That makes sense before deciding to transfer to the Fashion Institute of Technology, which is located in the heart of Manhattan. And that's where he really wanted to be.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Plus, there he was studying fashion design and exposed to way more artistic people. While at FIT, Michael met renowned artist Keith Haring's boyfriend. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> did, I, did I trick you? Boyfriend's pet cat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. They don't even mention this poor guy's name. They're like, he was at FIT and he met Keith Herring's boyfriend. Also, Keith Herring was way older at the time, so he must have had a pretty young boyfriend. Yeah. And this boyfriend, boyfriend unnamed, like wife unnamed, (laughs) um, introduced Michael to the club scene. He brought him to parties, introduced him to the club elites, and got Michael into the periphery of this scene. Like, when they talk about this period in time in the documentaries, you literally see him on the edge of photos of other people. Okay. Which is really interesting. It'll be like, this is a photo of, you know, James St. James, who was coming up at the same time but was a little more Mm -hmm. in the light at that point in time. But Michael will be like way in the corner. So he's, yeah, so he's still there and he's just like creeping. But this peripheral place would never be enough for him, obviously, but it was a door, and Michael Alec never met a door he couldn't kick in. It has been said that there wasn't enough attention in the world to satisfy Michael, but this was a start. Once he had a taste for the life, Michael began partying all night and sleeping all day, which is what all of them always said. They're like, we party all night and
1: sleep all day. That's our life.
0: (laughs) That was like their tagline. I know. (laughs) So many of them
1: said it. And then someone would be like, well, no, like I have work in the morning or like I have classes. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Your life is extra hard then.
0: I guess when you're, you know, 20, you can do that.
1: Yeah, I remember.
0: (laughs) But this party all night, sleep all day lifestyle does – for most, leave little room for taking college courses. Mm-hmm. So, naturally, Michael quickly dropped out of college altogether and got a job as a busboy at Danzateria Right. Yeah, which is as delightful of a name as a club has ever had. Yeah. <laughs> dance was also run by the most eccentric German David Byrne to, uh, lookalike to ever wander the globe. A true manic delight named Rudolph Piper, who was has one of my favorite quotes in any of the documentaries, which was, quote, chicks from New Jersey are hot. That's it. End quote. Yes, thank you, Rudolph. We are. He says a lot of other things, but I really liked that one. Yeah, that's the one you chose to. Do you remember the guy I'm talking about? He is great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Danceteria was a multi-floor, multi-DJ dance club that, quote, catered to a diverse after-hours crowd coming from the downtown rock clubs, Mud Club, Trax, TR3, Chinese Chance, and CBGB, and gay discos. The times they were a in, things were turning away from the glamour of Andy Warhol and the cocaine-fueled, sequin-coated shenanigans of Studio 54. They were grittier and more fringe. Clubs featured S and nights and themed parties with performances that wandered into the territory of the Jim Rose sideshows of the future. Personalities like Lee Bowery, who was hail, who came from Australia, began to dominate this new scene. And a lot of the current club kids and I watched. Um, I watched a really fascinating interview with James St. James, Michael Musto, and Amanda Lepore from DragCon. I think where they talk about Lee Bowery and they really credit this this person with starting this particular kind of look, Mm. cultivating this persona, this... It's so hard to describe because you want to call it fashion, but it's a costume, really. Right. Bowery was a performance artist who used his body as a canvas. He dressed in wild and avant-garde fashion. He made all of his outfits himself and painted his face to look like a ghastly clown. He was the antithesis of the beautiful and bohemian Warhol superstars. He looks like... The phase of Boy George when he had, like, just the little tiny bit of hair on his head and he right. did all the makeup, that's mm-hmm. that's directly influenced by Lee Bowery. Um, he was the antithesis of the bohemian beauty of the Warhol superstars. He was, like, a professional clown on acid, and I mean that in the best way. This was a new form of expression, and the New York club scene was eating it up. Bowery would go on to open the club, Taboo, that was his, mm-hmm. and influence the likes of, like I mentioned before, Boy George. They were buddies. He is often referred to as the original club kid. But even he would go on to be absorbed by the orbit of the skinny, hyperactive, overly intelligent boy hovering on the edges of the pictures. He's the one, and we're going to talk about talk shows in a little bit, but so you remember. On, I think it was Joan Rivers, his whole face is covered.
1: Yeah, okay. He has
0: like just a big puff of tulle like over Mm -hmm. his face. That's him. Okay. If you guys watch any of them, Leslie is going to talk about them in a little bit. And we'll, we'll try and put links to those, too. There's going to be a shit ton of links this week. Maybe we'll put those in our socials. They're f- real fun. They are real fun. You should check them out. <laughs> While at Danceateria, Michael began dating George Lopez. <laughs> Not yes. that George Lopez. Oh, no. I
1: was like, yes.
0: <laughs> I love when it was like, Steve Irwin, the one week, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, this was a man who went on to be known as DJ Kiyoki. Kyoki and Michael were pretty instantly inseparable. Kyoki was also a busboy, and the pair had ambition that went far beyond empty glasses and spent napkins. He knew he wanted to be a DJ. Side note for the record, young Kyoki did look almost exactly like Wilmer Valderrama.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They really nailed it. What
1: was his name in. Um,
0: oh, yeah, Fez? On that seventy show? Trying,
1: I couldn't remember. <laughs> I was getting so mad.
0: Yeah, they look a lot alike, though. I think the casting was good. Also, Kiyoki still works as a DJ in the industry, so more mm-hmm. fucking power to him. He's interviewed in, like, everything. He still does sets in, like, LA and stuff. He's... And that's all because of Michael, right? Like, yeah, Michael... Michael was the first one to give him a DJ gig at mm-hmm. the parties he ran, but we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Michael was nothing if not persistent. He was always making his way to Rudolph Piper, who did make a point of, like, being in his own club. Unlike, we'll later talk about Peter Gation, who, like, lived in the shadows.
1: Mm-hmm. Rudolph
0: Piper was there kind of wanted to keep a sense of what was happening. Michael would try to make suggestions. He would try telling him, like, I have really great ideas. I should be able to throw parties. I'm amazing. I'm going to do so much for your club. And he was like, you're nobody. Okay. (laughs) And he had no qualifications at all. There was no reason that he should have been able to do any of that. But... By this time, Michael had caught the attention of blooming club royalty and gossip columnists alike, particularly friends James St. James, the performance artist and self-declared celebutante who would eventually go on to mentor Michael in a sort of strange way, and famed Village Voice columnist Michael Musto. Musto wrote the deliciously gossipy nightlife column La Dolce Musto for the Village Voice for years, starting coincidentally in 1984 when Michael and James were coming up in the city. So they all kind of... this. All started happening together. This firestorm of art, opinions, fashion, social climbing, and lust for attention would fuel the cult club kid movement for nearly a decade. Musta, when asked about Michael Alec, rarely has a kind word to say, even in his early days. And truly, James seemed to grow a tolerance and affection for him with time. When Michael began, a lot of established personalities saw him as a pest, a kid who was pulling on the pants legs of the grown ups all over town. Established nightlife personas thought these new kids to be arrogant, narcissistic, and infantile. And
1: really, they were. Mm-hmm. But that's also that age, too. I mean, that's what they say yeah. about – that's what they said about millennials. <laughs> yeah. And now and, we'll say it about the next generation. <laughs> I'm sure we will. And But that also was part of their appeal. Right. Publicly, they were, like, very
0: bratty, I would say. That's the popular kids. Yeah. Abs- you nailed it. Absolutely. That, and that's what they were. Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating that Michael was frequently described in two completely different ways by the people in his life, but at, like, the same period in time. Mm -hmm. His contemporaries, so like other club kids, saw him as a charismatic genius, a man who saw things, who knew how to get a response, and who had his finger on the pulse of the city. Still others saw him as a manic attention whore to whom no spotlight was ever bright enough. And I think both were correct. Mm -hmm. The Venn diagram of those two people connected directly at Michael. Eventually, Rudolph Piper, Piper gave in and listened. I mean, you can only be relentless for so long, I suppose. He said that in doing so, the situation could have gone either of two ways. Michael would have maybe had some good ideas and that would benefit his club, or he would fail and then finally go away. So, <laughs> so persistence is key, you guys. <laughs> Michael proposed the club throw a dirty mouth competition where contestants would go into the audience and insult people. <laughs> Which directly relates back to ball culture, where you would be, like, reading people. Yeah. Um, It's the same kind of thing. So the best, quickest, or most shocking or funniest person would, would win this competition. I guess they'd win free drinks or something. And Rudolph thought that there was a chance this could be something. And he went with it. And something is a wild understatement. The party was an instant sensation. And suddenly, Michael was throwing parties every night of the week. Papering the city with flyers for his avant-garde events, dressing like a deranged clown orgy participant, and collecting a gang of misfits as he went. Unlike his predecessors, though, Michael wasn't interested in the people who were beautiful and popular. He was interested in the kids who just desperately wanted to be in. He likes people who were strange and outside the societal norms. He likes people who weren't beautiful or within the current boundaries of a beautiful body. He liked, as one of my favorite movies calls them, all the beautiful little tattooed gum-chewing freaks. And if you can tell me where that line is from, you get my eternal respect. I don't know. I was going to say, don't say it if you do, but, like, if you do, post it somewhere, you get a cookie. (laughs) Michael likes people who needed somewhere to belong, and whether that was for altruistic reasons or not, I'll leave you to decide on your own as we continue. New York City's counterculture always provided a home for LGTBQ plus community folks, but this wave Michael had started said that you didn't have to be beautiful or even particularly talented, though there surely were some talents among the bunch. RuPaul was among them. That yeah. RuPaul, like, hung out with these people, so that <laughs> tells you something, which continually amazes me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> but you didn't have to be RuPaul. You could just be creative, persistent, expressive, and bulletproof. Michael had become one of the city's premier club promoters, and after lingering on the edges, studying the business of nightclubs and the taste of the clientele, Michael threw events that would pack the clubs, sometimes for days at a time. He had created a new form of celebrity, the club kid, a phrase I have thrown around a lot thus far, but whose edges I have yet to define. Don't worry, under-explaining things is not exactly my problem. So, you're safe. James St. James described the club kids as, quote, part drag, part clown, part infantilism. And being the life of the party was not just their expertise, it was their job. Michael realized that the kids who truly committed to this lifestyle were the people who made any event. And so he cultivated them, getting them jobs as paid promoters and personalities. Put simply, they would get paid, or if they were like in a lesser tier, they would not have to pay to just be at a party or a themed club night. That was their whole life. Come, be fabulous, here is money. Wild. Mm-hmm. And he created that. People like Paris Hilton wouldn't have existed if these people yeah. didn't pave the way. At their zenith, there was a troop of, I want to say, around 20 of them that achieved a like a B-level celebrity status and cult following. I remember they were on trading cards, which you can still get on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> They're worth more now. <laughs> They had wild and evocative names like Jenny Talia, Richie Rich, Ernie Glam, Kenny Kenny, Walt Paper, and the It Twins. They had huge, exaggerated, cocky personalities designed to both attract and provoke people. The club kid persona was cultivated carefully by design. Former club kid Walt Cassidy said, quote, This whole notion of lifestyle identity as brand was fully articulated by the club kids. He goes on to say, quote, You could see this in our appearances on television shows, promotional tours, trading cards, and magazine editorials. We rather obnoxiously promoted ourselves as products and were eventually featured in conjunction with larger brands. They were Instagram celebrities before there was Instagram.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And what's really funny is that – I don't talk about this later, so I'll say it now. Um, Later in life, there's a conversation between James St. James and Michael, like a few years before he died, where he's like, getting out of prison, and James St. James is like, let me tell you what's in the world now. Anybody from anywhere can be what we were because of the internet. (laughs) It's like, let me tell you about Instagram.
1: That's so funny. Yeah, it was
0: nuts. Walt also confessed that after his club kid days, he had to go into deep therapy and experience a kind of deprogramming of sorts to reclaim who he actually was.
1: I can imagine that.
0: Yeah, if you look at Walt, who was – his club kid name was Walt Paper – he looks 100% different now mm-hmm. and, and just presents totally differently. He's like, well, this is who I was. I, I had this persona I put on to do those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So who were these people? Well, not a lot of them are names you might recognize. And honestly, none of them went by their government names. But there are some you will know. And as I mentioned before, RuPaul was among them. And there is no way in hell that I have to explain RuPaul. <laughs> Um, James St. James, who we've mentioned a few times, has gone on to achieve a name for himself in television. Drag Race is among his credits, obviously. So quite a few of you are probably going to recognize him from there. He also wrote the book Disco Bloodbath, for which the subsequent movie Party Monster was based. Uh, Amanda Lepore is another one. She was the famed David LaChapelle and Terry Richardson model and Muse, and she's quite recognizable. I love her. She's a great interview. And when asked what she does for a living, she once replied that she doesn't have time to work because she spends all of her time getting ready.
1: It's so good. She's great.
0: <laughs> if you don't know what Amanda looks like, Google her right now. I will wait. <laughs> Pretty good, right? <laughs> so good. She is a work of art. There was also Richie Rich, the ex-figure skater. He used to skate in the ice capades. Yeah. I love him. <laughs> I know. He's great. Um, turned club kid. And then after his club kid days, Richie went on to found fashion label Heatherette. Also, actress Lisa Edelstein, like the woman that played Dr. Cuddy on House. Oh, yeah. was club kid Lisa A.E. and costume designer Patricia Field, both mm-hmm. former club kids, along with celebrity makeup artist Kabuki and jewelry designer and artist Walt Cassidy, formerly known as Walt Paper. Mm-hmm. If you're noticing a similar vibe, with the exception of Lisa Edelstein, that one threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. That isn't an accident. Without the Club Kids, there would be no drag race culture. And that's not to say I'm crediting them for drag. I am certainly not. But what I am crediting them for is the kind of mainstream celebrity of the fringe that made shows like that possible.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Without their step in celebrity history, there would be none of that. We explored other origins of current drag in our episode about Dorian Corey and ball culture, but there is more than a little crossover between the two. Plenty of people who survived Paris's burning showed up at Michael's parties. They are both rungs on the same ladder. And both movements enjoyed the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. And never were the club kids at a higher high—well, except when they turned to drugs, but we'll get to that shortly— than during their stint as a feature in the golden era of afternoon talk shows, Joan Rivers, Phil Donahue, Geraldo Rivera, and Jenny Jones, all of whom hosted the club kids at one time or another— Now, I know this is kind of a break in our timeline, but these appearances are kind of all over the map, Mm -hmm. so I figured it might be fun to talk about them now. So, Leslie, why don't you talk about fun talk shows for us a little bit?
1: (laughs) Um, Yeah, so they – like you said, they were on all these talk shows, and those would air probably – I feel like they were mostly like the 90s to like 94, like early 90s is when a lot of them were on. Some of them came on a little later, but –
0: Yeah, Um, and the timeline that I am am building is on hold right now at about 1988, but considering right now is when we're talking about their celebrity. I thought it would be fun.
1: Okay, cool. Um, So they were on the Joan Rivers show. One of the ones that I watched is where it was about people who dress for attention. Ooh. And they said five simple – she she calls them out as five simple people with a dream and a wardrobe from hell. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Joan. I love it. Um, she asked them about what they did on Halloween. And this oh, I was love a, that. I know. Uh, they get asked this question a lot, like what they would do on Halloween. So the, obviously they'd come out and they'd be in all of these crazy costumes. And they're like, we dress like this every night. And they're just like, well, what do you do on Halloween? And they answered, we don't go out. Which sounded a little like a joke, but then James St. James explained it further, and he was like, we tend to not dress up at all for like the month before or after because it's actually kind of depressing. It was Be- so sad. I know, because <laughs> every time they would dress up, people will say like, oh, Halloween's next week, or it was last week. <laughs> it's just too annoying for them. So they're I like- know. I love that. Then there was another one on Joan Rivers where it was like a Style Summit, nineteen ninety three, um, and this is where they showcased some of the designers and trends that were coming out. So again, these were mm. the club kids, like yeah. they had just been to the Style Summit, and so here were oh, well, that's all the right, outfits. they did all those like fashion shows and stuff. Mm-hmm. And this was where I like fell in love with Richie Rich because he was just such a perfect like MC. He was so good and fast at it and he also could say wore roller skates sometimes, which oh, I love. So and he he's always the one. He always has like a mirror and he's looking at oh, himself. Yeah. And he's he's using it as a way to be like, We are vain, but like this is also me calling it out.
0: Because that was a like a character yeah. that he put bigger than life. They were almost cartoons. They put right. this on to be like, Okay, well here's this thing that we put on and they got
1: paid to put it on. Yeah. Um and so she talked to them a lot about their costumes and their designs and how long it took them to get ready and how much money it cost. So this was how the long cool did it one. take you to get ready? Yeah, so they uh, most of them it was around three to four hours. Um some would say like depending on what it was if it was just their makeup like a simple makeup mm-hmm. and maybe their it was an outfit then it could take them like an hour mm-hmm. but a lot of people will say like 3 to 4 hours to get ready which is why they couldn't have other jobs Yeah they <laughs> slept all day then yeah. got ready for 3 hours and then mm-hmm. went out and got and paid to party They got paid to party um and she was always concerned about how much it cost and this is like a big question because obviously a lot of them didn't seem to have jobs. Right. So they were like, how much are you spending on this? I don't understand. You must all be poor and this is mm-hmm. a terrible lifestyle. But they were like, well, we make it all ourselves. Yeah. And I had all of this lying around. This was like a dustbuster, like mm-hmm. skirt. And so most of them, one girl said that her outfit cost her a couple hundred, but that she had all of those,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all the material. So it was like over a, period of time that she racked up like four or five hundred and then another person was like this one cost me two dollars because I just had pieces you know like I work at a at a like a fashion design place so Mm -hmm. I was just able to take scraps and create this beautiful outfit. Yeah, so that was really
0: cool. And that's very similar to, like, drag culture yes. as well. A lot of, like, drag queens will say, well, when I started, I made my dresses out of nothing. Or I had to kind of, like, just take what I could get or bargain shop and, and make things go together. And then mm-hmm. as I came up, I was able to spend more money. So that's, yeah. a, that's like, another overlap
1: there. Um, then there was – they went on Waldo a lot. So the first one I watched was in the 90s, and this was where he just had like five or six of them come up on stage. It wasn't like a whole audience Those were better. Those were a lot better when it was just a couple. Joan Rivers did that too, where it would just be a couple I think the
0: ones that had like 10 or more of them on were looking to produce chaos. Yes. Mm -hmm. They were looking to make them behave badly.
1: Mm -hmm. And because they had the ones that were – like, they weren't the main stars. Mm-hmm. They they were the followers. Mm-hmm. So the things that they had to say were going to be what all the parents feared. <laughs> right. Well, I'll, we get into that in a little mm-hmm. bit. So Geraldo had them on, and this was, again, early, like, 1990. Um, they had Richie Rich, Michael, Alec, James St. James, and a few others. There was one where they had a 16-year-old girl on, and this was – in the movie Party Monster, you'll see James St. James wearing a costume like it. It's like – it's kind of looks like a dominatrix costume. Oh, the black one?
0: He – she's like yeah. totally wrapped up?
1: Yeah. So she's like totally wrapped up. Her whole up. face is covered and she has like little like yeah. space buns on top of her head. Mm-hmm. So she was on there. She apparently was a uh, – she was an interesting character because – She was like a socialite in New York and her parents had no, yeah, and her parents didn't know that she did this. So they were like, well, how do your parents not know? And yeah, so that one was interesting to find out. And the club owner was like, I didn't know, like, (laughs) that we don't allow, like, you know, anybody under 18 to come in. They didn't try to not
0: have people under 18 come in. Yeah,
1: so that was an interesting one. But Geraldo always talked to them really nicely, which I liked. And he would just, you know, try to find out what they did, try to educate the public on Mm
0: -hmm. what a
1: club kid actually is and who they are. He always gave them a platform to talk about what they were working on, where they saw their futures going in this life stream. I think a lot of times when they brought Michael Musto, that
0: was like his part of the
1: talk. Mm-hmm. He would
0: – because sometimes he would go on these shows with them. Right. And he would be like, no, this is our lifestyle. We're valid artists and innovators mm-hmm. and we get paid to do this and this is what it is and we, mm-hmm. we're fashion designers and models and this and that and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's always seemed to be kind of like the voice of reason. Right.
1: <laughs> and it was always interesting because most of these kids are very smart. A lot of them had a college education. Yeah. Um, and they went to good schools, like very good schools. So when they spoke, it was – Very interesting. They always had the history of where they got there, like how they got there. They always knew and credited the people that brought them in. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was interesting. And some other talk shows would – gloss over that. They'd, like, push that to the side Mm -hmm. and be like, no, what you're doing is terrible. Yeah. And that was, like, Phil Donahue's show, which was the most uncomfortable one to watch. It's painful. One, because he's uncomfortable in general, like, watching him, like, pull people into him when he, like, would bring the mic around and then rip the microphones out of people's hands. so nasty. Yeah, I couldn't. He was so hard. But he was terrible with them. He had them on. He... (sighs) He just wanted them to sound terrible and like um, a waste of of life.
0: He called them like ne'er do wells and mm-hmm. jobless street rats and stuff. That's the other thing. They were not city kids, <laughs> no. And a lot of people were like, "Well, you're kids that grew up in like inner city impoverished situations." They weren't. They were no. suburban
1: kids that that came there to do that. Right. Right. Um. He at one point asked them. If they, if they allowed, because this was about who they allowed into the clubs, and they were like, everyone, everyone can come in. And he was like, well, do you allow black people into your clubs? No, and he didn't. He did. <gasps> and they were like, yes, of course, everybody is allowed into the clubs. It's 1990. And he, said, and he said, well, I just was wondering because I thought that you would want a certain clientele in there. And I was, like, oh mortified. I was, like, what? And then in the audience, so he was constantly taking audience questions. How was he not right shut away. down after that statement? So right <laughs> away, the first person in the audience that stands up is a black woman. And yeah. I'm thinking, like, she's going to put him down. Nope. Instead, <laughs> instead she stood up and she, she asked Phil, um, like, how, how their – or asked the kids on the stage how their lives were sustainable. I was like, you were just – he just asked if they allowed black people in because of a clientele thing, like a There was
0: no way at that point in time on his show she probably felt that she could, like, fire at Phil Donahue. She just, like,
1: ignored that and, like, went after them and, like, looked down upon them. Also,
0: editing is a a nice thing. True. Yeah. I know. I know. (laughs) You never
1: know what the reaction to that was (laughs) in real time. It might have
0: been like, you should go fuck yourself, Phil
1: Donahue. I know. I was just like, yeah, she's going to stand up. And I was like, well, it's early 90s. I was like, nowadays she'd be like – Bitch, sit down. (laughs) Plus, she was on his show, and he was a very big deal back then. You couldn't just be like, fuck you, Phil Donahue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, A lot of what they talked about on the shows, especially with Phil Donahue's, was they just harped on the drug and alcohol portion of it and abusing drug and alcohol, um, especially at, like, the young ages and feeling nervous that they were influencing these young kids to come out Mm -hmm. um, and not being able to handle it. And the club kids were very – they tried as hard as they could to push that narrative away yeah. and really talk about the positive side of something. And they would talk about the nastier sides, but the a lot of these talk show hosts made it really hard yeah. to have an honest conversation about it. Something that – but at that time, I mean, in the 90s, like even thinking about my D.A.R.E. classes, yeah. those were a lot more like fear-driven Absolutely. versus educational-driven. Yeah. So it was. It was. Uh, watching it, I was like, "Oh my gosh, this is bringing back so much of my youth." And just understanding I, my own.
0: When I learned about how ineffective Dare was, <laughs> yeah, I was astounded because mm-hmm. all I remembered was like, "This is what they did in school. They scared the living daylights out of you mm-hmm. about drugs." Um, and because both of us are kind of obedient kids who'd mm-hmm. be like oh no they are scary right. but not everybody had that reaction marijuana is a gateway drug one well, other problem was kids would end up trying it and then be like oh right this isn't what you told me it was right i didn't immediately die in a gutter mm-hmm. i could do heroin that's fine yeah <laughs>
1: <laughs> no it's not <laughs> but like the long-term effects let's talk about that yeah, you know right? oh my gosh <laughs> yeah um, and then the last one I'll talk about is the last time i the latest one that I saw, which was on or no, I'm sorry, we'll talk about Jenny Jones. Ugh. so Jenny Jones would have on the club kids as well, and a lot of times they weren't the the main ones. They were like the subset of them, and they were she would always have them on for makeovers. And it was very uncomfortable because her makeovers, so she would bring them on and they'd be in their wild club outfits. Mm -hmm. Also acting like they dressed like this on a reg. Like this is how they woke up in the morning. (laughs) On the street. Yeah, and just like, you know, went to go get a coffee, go to class. This is Mm -hmm. how they dress. Um, And then she would do these makeovers to be like, look, now you can go get a job. And almost every time the person would answer, I have a job. (laughs) <laughs> mm-hmm. And it wasn't that they worked at – like, sometimes it would be that they worked at the club mm-hmm. as, like, the promoter or a bartender mm-hmm. or, you know, at the door. But sometimes it would be like, no, like, I, I work retail. It's fine. <laughs> I know. They really did want to make them a kind of villain mm-hmm. that they – that some of them became but did not start out as. Right. Yeah. Well, that's it. I would go just go down a rabbit hole. It's really fun. It is yeah. a great one, and if you're, you know, around our age, Holly, and my age, mm-hmm. it'll will bring back memories of even for me, i I was younger at the time, so I wouldn't have gone to these clubs then. But I would have seen all of this on TV. yeah, and it did just the music and the way that they dressed and other mm-hmm. things. It really steered me in a certain direction that I didn't realize I was so much a part of.
0: Absolutely. I did go to the tunnel, but we're going to talk about yeah. that later.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even just like these drugs and all the crime and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, since living so close to New York, I just didn't realize how much I was affected by that or what I remember. I was like, oh, this was, this was my youth. Yeah,
0: I, <laughs> I mean, when we, when I read, and I don't know, where we're gonna go. I know we're jumping around time wise a lot here, but some things keep coming up. When I read while doing this, and I don't go into it too much because we could just talk forever about what Giuliani did to New York.
1: I talk a little bit about it. Good. Mm-hmm. I was appalled. Mm-hmm. I but at the time you, I had no feel idea. Yeah, I had
0: absolutely no idea how bad it was for mm-hmm. some people. I mean, there are some long-term effects on New York that were for sure good. Like, mm-hmm. again, we talked about how when we were little in New York was scary, and it's not now.
1: Right. But, but also, also <laughs> what we're dealing with right now is because of that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I, like, th- there was so much of that that I didn't see mm-hmm. because of the
0: part of my life that I was in and because of the media I consumed and I just chose, not chose, you're a kid. I just believed what I was told. Mm-hmm. It was... um Enlightening, to yeah. say the least, to to read about that stuff. and we and we're going to get to that when we talk about limelight. Leslie has some stuff. I have a little bit of it, but um, I encourage anybody to go read up on that. And if you need resources, let us know because it is a lot. Thank you, Leslie. So as we discussed, um and th- this was a nice gateway into this for the club kids, their persona was was the thing. It was an escape. It was a work of art. It was a product, as Walt so effectively communicated earlier. But that wasn't the case for Michael. Only Michael went by his real name. Right. Everybody else had some sort of fabrication, some kind of pseudonym, some sort of clever thing. Michael was Michael Alec. Only Michael continued to shock and provoke long after the club had closed. He did dress like that in real life. He did act like that on the street. Because for him, it wasn't a persona. It was real life. hmm And that's where things start to get a little dangerous. Now, back to where I was in my timeline. Um, At that point, we were around 1988. Michael was working as a successful promoter and had been for about four years at clubs around the city, predominantly those owned and operated by Rudolph Piper and a couple other less eccentric club owners whose names I do not remember. (laughs) Uh, Rudolph and Michael, though, created a larger-than-life atmosphere. And by this time, the national news media had caught on to the club kids, and their talk show appearances that Leslie just talked about had skyrocketed them from the Village Voice to Time and People magazines. What Michael did with his public appearances, though, was to make New York a destination. He cultivated this image um, on the talk shows of, like, do you know what your kids are up to? Right. That was a lot of the taglines. Like, if you're not watching, your kids sneak off to New York City Mm -hmm. and they do all this crazy stuff, which didn't put people on alert. It made kids want to do that. Mm -hmm. and he was a very clever man, and he was very intelligent. Michael knew that this was the outcome. So instead of getting kids, like I said before, that were in impoverished neighborhoods in the city, he got suburban kids with trust funds that came out Mm -hmm. and populated his parties. They had the money and the means, and they wanted an escape from where they were living. A lot of them were part of the LGBTQ plus community. They wanted a place where they belonged, and they thought New York City was it. Some of them visited for a day. Some of them visited for a month, a year. Or forever some of them didn't make it out um but but that's how he created this horde that public attention created that buzz and that buzz brought them in he was very much a, a, like a pied piper of misfit toys right to mix all my metaphors <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that was on one of the shows uh there was a group of girls from connecticut mm-hmm. and they were from trumbull which is where I went to high school. It comes back every time. Every time. (laughs) And half of them were like, I think this is stupid. And then there was like three of them that were like, Trumbull is so boring. I just want to be there. Like, can you guys start a club in our area? And so then they – it was like Richie Rich, uh, James St. James, and Michael who were all like – like, this is how you start it. You get, is there enough of you? Just, like, just start having yeah. these parties and promoting and doing it. Exactly. Which we had parties like that in our area later on. And that's for sure why. <laughs> Maybe it was those girls. Maybe it was those precise <laughs> girls.
0: <laughs> um, but these kids, they wanted – they were looking to rebel. And most of all, they were looking to be that life of the party. Michael, who hadn't been initially accepted by the who's who of New York nightlife, had created his own scene a bigger scene, and those who once turned their nose up at him were begging for his acceptance. Several people were quoted as saying they couldn't tell whether Michael was smart or crazy. Mm -hmm. But I think we all know that those who burn the brightest for the shortest amounts of time are a stealthy combination of both. You may have noticed that up until this point, I've left drug use out mostly. And that's not because it didn't exist. No, plenty of the club kids had an occasional fondness for cocaine or ketamine, or pot, and certainly the alcohol was always flowing. But Michael remained squeaky clean. That is, until ecstasy arrived on the scene.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about ecstasy for a minute. I'm going to try and pronounce a big word that I did not rehearse. methamphetamine, or MDMA. Somebody will tell me how well I <laughs> did it. or how bad I didn't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I can't, it's too many letters. <laughs>
0: I have to say them syllable by syllable very slowly like a robot.
1: (laughs) I'm hooked on phonics. (laughs) Basically,
0: commonly referred to as ecstasy, E or molly, is a psychoactive drug primarily used for recreational purposes. The desired effects include altered sensations, increased energy, empathy, as well as pleasure. MDMA acts primarily by increasing the activity of neurotransmitters serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline in parts of the brain. It belongs to the substitute amphetamine classes of drugs and has stimulant and hallucinogenic effects, so it makes you pretty happy. Though it was developed in 1912, which I'm so shocked by, right. by Merck, the hybrid narcotic became popular as a recreational substance in the 70s and 80s because of how well it paired with dance clubs. In the rave-type environment, the sensory effects of music and lighting are often highly synergistic with ecstasy. The psychedelic amphetamine quality of MDMA offers multiple appealing aspects to users in the rave or dance club setting. Some users enjoy the feeling of, like, mass communication with the people around them. They mm-hmm. feel like they're all part of something. And it also um heavily reduces your inhibitions. So mm-hmm. you're likely to engage in other things. Sexy acts that you might not when you weren't <laughs> on it. Or you might take off your clothes a lot. All of this is good if you're in a club. Well yeah. I mean if you're someone who's promoting this club. Mm-hmm. While others use it as party fuel because of the drug's stimulatory effects. So it's a like a cocktail of drugs. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty well suited for a group of hypersexualized, over over-the-top misfits. Mm-hmm. The death of Andy Warhol in 1987 signaled the ch- a changing of the guard in New York City, and the club kids reigned supreme. Their parties became wilder and more unhinged, and therefore more popular, featuring sideshow-esque acts like a man who stood on stage and drank his own urine. <laughs> so that's fun. Drugs became more pervasive, and ecstasy and other substances um, were laced in punches. So in some of the documentaries, the, the club kids would talk about how they were like little paper Dixie cups mm-hmm. and it was like some sort of sweet juice and then in it would be like K and ecstasy and something else. And they would hand it to you through a hole in the wall. Right. And they just passed this stuff out it's wild. because it encouraged a party. Right. And that's when you know how your parents were always like, people will hand you drugs. That's why. That's the only time that <laughs> <Yeah>. happened. <laughs> no one in your neighborhood is like – Take my pot, really. It's fine. No, they're keeping their shit. But these people
1: absolutely did hand out party enhancer type drugs. Right. That's Um, like at Halloween this year where they're like, they'll give you like gummies with weed in them. And you're just like, nobody nobody has money for that. Do you know how
0: expensive edibles are? We're not handing them out. That's crazy. (laughs) Huh. So, so yeah, they would hand out these little punches. And and like you had mentioned when we talked before the show – Pills would just get handed out. Like ecstasy yeah. was like a party favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what got Michael started on doing it. And, you know, ecstasy does have amphetamines in it and it does have – it's not always made cleanly. I mean yeah. you you get other substances in it and these punches that they handed out were not just ecstasy. They were a bunch of things. Um, Rudolph Piper – at this point, had had Michael set up to control his own club. It was all set to open in 1988, and Michael had begun to make plans for events when Rudolph suddenly pulled the plug on him. Michael was unceremoniously fired, and his gang of merry misfits would need to find a new home. And if this seems sudden to you, well, join the club. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so clever. Michael wasn't expecting it either. He was packing the club night after night, so why did this happen? Well, Rudolph Piper is an intuitive man. He saw the direction in which the club kids, kids were heading. Live sex was beginning to become prevalent in the clubs, just like all over the place, as well as rampant drug use and other majorly risky behavior that didn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. People were um, overdosing to certain levels. Um, it, it just, the scene wasn't. It didn't seem it was as. Like
1: when in Rome. Yeah. It was like the Roman Empire falling. It was
0: very black and alien. It didn't seem to be as joyful and, and, and innocent as it used to be, if innocent is a word you can really use. Danger seemed to be on the horizon. And really, he couldn't have been more right. He cut it off years before it got dangerous, and mm-hmm. he was very smart to do it. But of course, this, this didn't stop Michael. Mm-mm. If he lost his old home, he'd just find another one. Michael was immediately picked up by a man named Peter Gation to essentially run the club that he owned that lived in a ramshackle old church. And that club was The Limelight, which, if it sounds infamous to your ears, like it should. (laughs) The Limelight is both famous and infamous, actually, all on its own, but it also has an indelible place in Club Kid history and contributed to an escalation of sorts that led Michael to end up murdering a man.
1: So, um, before we move further, why don't we talk a little bit about um, Limelight? Sure. So Limelight, like we said, is a club in New York that operated from 1983 to basically like 2007 or Yeah, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, and was owned by Peter Gation. So before he opened his club in New York, he had first opened one in Miami and then in Atlanta. And after those were wildly successful, he felt confident that he could compete with the New York City club scene. Okay. Um, just like Studio 54 and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Fancy. Um, also, uh, I didn't write this down, but Peter grew up in Canada and he, at a young age, he got a baseball, there was a baseball accident that caused oh, yeah. him to down like lose his eye. Yeah. So he always wore this patch. So... He There's wore like, a sexy black eye patch, on. He though. had a black <laughs> eye patch on. Yeah. But it made him great to become, like, the, the evil man later on.
0: <laughs> oh, my God.
1: I've never seen anyone have been like, that eye patch was a good choice. But that eye patch was good, man. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Um, his last clubs were huge from uh, for their disco and rock nights, but Peter was aware of the new era coming in, so he didn't want to do the same as his other clubs or the same as Studio 54, and he noticed that the people going to the clubs were more of an artsy type now and disco and rock weren't really keeping their attention. Uh, so when he went looking for a new space, he wanted to find something more, like, architecturally interesting. And it was. um And almost like a church, mm-hmm. which, lo and behold, <laughs> a church was for sale. Aww. And the church of – it was the Church of the Holy Communion on 6th Ave, like an Episcopal. It's so weird church. to me that a church is for sale. I know. I know it happens, but doesn't it seem weird? It does, Yeah. So, the church was built in 1852 and held a congregation until 1976. The church was leased to the Lindisfarne Association, which is a research collective of artists, scientists, and scholars. Hmm. They had it for two years till they weren't able to sustain it, and they gave it back to the church, who was able to sell it to the Odyssey House. Ooh. Uh, this was a drug and rehabilitation center. So already at this point, there was, with like the AIDS epidemic and everything yeah. else, there was just a lot of drugs yeah. on the street in New York. And like we said, it just wasn't a nice place to be really. Nope. Um, so New York, especially during this year, was going through a crack pan- um, epidemic. And this would seem like it was going to be helpful. However, since it was a nonprofit, they didn't last long because the costs were just not sustainable. So they put the church back up for bidding. Um, and Peter Gasham was there with an offer. The Odyssey House says they would have liked to give it to another church, but they had to go with the highest bidder to keep them from going bankrupt.
0: Him and his eye patch rolled up.
1: Yeah. Buying a <laughs> church. So Peter got a lot of backlash from the community because they, uh, but this didn't halt his plans. Because the church was a historical landmark, he left the outsides of the, of the church alone, but inside, though, he created his club. And I'll add, like, a bunch of pictures in the photo suite for that. Yeah,
0: we might have two
1: full suites this week because this There's is a so much very so fun visual this. episode. In 1983, Limelight opened with a party hosted by Andy Warhol. Yoko Ono hosted a party that first week, too. Oh,
0: my gosh.
1: It was $15 to get in, $5 for drinks. Nice. Yeah. Let me go to that party. <laughs> right. And it was encouraged to come dressed up. So Peter set up theme nights throughout the week. The limelight quickly became the place to be. But then the AIDS epidemic swept through the city. And in 1985, the club was becoming a little more tame. So not as many people were going out. He was noticing this a lot more in his other properties, like Miami and Atlanta and Chicago. So he ended up closing those to keep the limelight going because people were still going. It just wasn't as chaotic. Um, You know, everyone, yeah. no one really understood how you got HIV or AIDS. So they were nervous, like, to even, you know, kiss on the cheek, share a drink, dance too close. So it was just becoming a little – a lot of the clubs were struggling around then for a couple years.
0: What I think is so interesting, too, is that during this time period, like, at least the beginning of it, the AIDS epidemic was a huge thing in New York Mm -hmm. City. But it doesn't
1: seem to touch the club kids as much. And I think it's because they're kids imported from elsewhere. Exactly. Their kids imported from elsewhere and also because they they knew about it. They yeah. were they were younger. Yep. They weren't in the middle of it yet. They weren't having sex yet. They weren't doing drugs yet. And then they were watching their elders
0: yeah. have these look issues. At, like the ball culture stuff, they just lost
1: everyone. They lost mm-hmm. so many people to AIDS. But then yeah. if you read about the club kids like the casualties aren't as many. No, it's mostly just ODing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They weren't sharing needles. They weren't. So doing- it's interesting
0: because the time period is very similar, but mm-hmm. their experiences were different. Right. It's
1: mm-hmm. based on a little
0: age gap. Yeah. Sorry, keep going. So
1: after several years, the city was getting a handle on the AIDS epidemic, and there was more information out there on how to how you contract it and yeah. how to control it. Um, so the club scene was rising up again with a new generation of kids. Peter Gation knew he needed some help in attracting the younger crowd to his club, so he enlisted the help of Michael Alec to be his club promoter. Michael brought with him his own group of club kids who each had their specialties, and together they steered limelight away from disco and rock and into the techno gothic an industrial area. Limelight went from having hundreds of people a night to thousands of people a night. Uh, promoters would throw their own theme nights throughout the week, sometimes having three or four parties at the same time just in different parts. So like if you think of a, a big church, they have different rooms. So yeah, had, like, each room would have something and then there'd be like the main floor where like all the Staten Islanders would be like pumping their techno.
0: I thought it was interesting too that Michael was like, my club nights are Wednesdays.
1: Yeah. What? <laughs> Everyone has work. That, and he's like, "That's were my nights. I packed the club on a Wednesday, that's when cool people went. Yep. Wednesday? <laughs> well, do you remember in college, like Thursday, like you would have a certain night yeah, that you went out? I mean, I have absolutely to me, I just, I'm an old Saturday. M- no one went out on a Saturday. You that's just partied at college. And during the week, it would be like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. That's, that's what they it. said. They were
0: like, lame people went out on Fridays and Saturdays, please.
1: Yeah, for <laughs> sure. So you would have a lot of kids that would enter. Um, you would that I always thought this was interesting. You'd kind of come with your group, so you'd have like the goth kids. There would be like the gay kids in one room, then the drags in another, and maybe like the raver, like the Staten Islanders over here. But then by soon enough, everyone would end up on the main floor, all mixed together, and the people you thought you would never mingle with, or you ended up going home with, you or were dancing with. Doing it with them. Yeah, <laughs> it was like it was nice. Everybody, everyone got together. Uh, <laughs> so nice. <laughs> Real pleasant. <laughs> the clubs were 18 and older, 21 to drink, but once you were in, it didn't matter. Um, anyone could get drinks, drugs, and sex whenever they wanted. Yep. Uh, if you were under 18, no problem. Bring a fake ID, but they probably wouldn't check it. Listen, I'm going to tell you about that
0: later. My fake ID was essentially a photocopy, and they were like, yep, you're fine.
1: <laughs> they gave no shits. They liked having kids there. They People still think my ID is fake. So, Leslie, <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I never had. I <laughs> could never get anywhere. <laughs> the the club wanted younger people there. It was cool to have the young kids running the show. The young kids who felt misunderstood or didn't know who they were yet felt like they could be most themselves when they were in the club. They were surrounded by others who just wanted to express themselves and it was the first time kids felt like they were even being noticed. Unfortunately for some, the party was a little too much to handle. Cocaine and ecstasy was the drug of choice inside the clubs. Peter Gation would never condone drugs being sold in the club. His policy was, if we catch you, you're out, which means sell away. Just don't get caught. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I don't know. I'm not telling you to sell them publicly. <laughs> yeah. that
0: was his position.
1: They had some of like the, obviously they would have these theme nights like we mentioned, but they would also have uh, a lot of games played. And one of the games was called What's My Line? And I thought like, oh, that's like a fun like a fun game. Like I no, bet it's not. No, it was. They would have on stage like on a table crushed up drugs in a line Uh and people would just come up not knowing what it was until it hit them and then they would like know what they took. That was the game that you played just going to the club. But Peter Gation said there were no drugs in his Well he wasn't there watching that happen. He was up in his office. He was up in the office. (laughs) The demands for pills were growing, which means more suppliers and dealers were getting involved, and some did not care about the quality of the product. Many club goers were getting pills and coke laced with other drugs. It was really creating a problem, and the clubs were getting wild. (laughs) It was real wild. At this point, Peter Gation had opened up three more clubs in New York, the Tunnel, the Palladium, and Club USA. He was making rounds almost every night to show face. So this was something like Michael Alec had said, you know, other club owners are – are there. Like, you see them, and Mm -hmm. you know what it is. Otherwise, you're just going to kind of look like you're lording your money over people, and, like, us younger kids don't love that Mm -hmm. kind of of look. So Peter, who didn't really – he didn't do drugs in his club. He didn't drink while he was at work. He – didn't feel comfortable, like, being in the party scene, he still would, like, come down. So you'll just see, like, funny pictures of him, like, standing, like, he on a wall. He looks so serious. He looks so serious. He did not like being there. He just, like, wanted to go home to his wife. He had on his eyepatch, <laughs> hanging out. Yeah. But they also
0: said that a lot of times he would be up in his office. Like, he was present. You knew he was there. He was there. But he wasn't in mm-hmm. the room. He was, like, away.
1: Yeah. He said he worked six days a week and – Those nights he would do around at each one, and he'd end up like the slower one Mm -hmm. at the end of the night. And then he, but for the most part, he'd only stay for like a short period just to be like, I was here, you took a picture, I'm gone. So ecstasy at the time was still legal until 1996, which is wild. wild. (laughs) Cocaine, heroin, and marijuana were not legal, though. The city was dealing with the crack taking over their streets, especially the area around the club, which they believe led to an increase in crime. The residents wanted something done to get the crack off their streets and reduce the crime rates. Crack is whack. Quack is whack. That's when Rudy Giuliani saw his big break and wanted Uh. to crack down on the crime and drugs in the city. This is how I always knew Rudy. Yeah, it right? sounded good. It sounds if you're just like I on remember the thinking Rudy was amazing and now yes! I'm like, why did I ever think that?
0: Anyway. I I thought like SNL Rudy Giuliani was yes, the real one. where I You're know. like, look at him. It's
1: 9/11, he's saving everything I and he's know. so clever on TV. No, he's terrible. So he was elected the mayor in 1993 and started right away working towards shutting down all the clubs he could. He upgraded the police department's computer systems, enabling law enforcement to better monitor emerging crime patterns. Police brutality was increasing in the area, but the crime rates were going down. And within a few years, that um, it was like half of what it was, yeah. which was incredible. Um, like we said, we went from not being able to walk like, more than a block on Mm -hmm. a street to, like, walking all of New York City just fine. Yep. Crazy. Yeah, your ass better have been in a cab if it was, like, in the 80s. Yeah. And the way he handled his, like, the police departments is how other large cities in the U.S. started – they started looking towards him to see what he was doing. Um, In the documentary Limelight, they really go into this, which was really interesting. And it was like a big eye-opener to me Mm -hmm. of how we got to where we are today. Mm. Um, People just being stopped on the street for no reason. They were just black walking down the street. And they would just like fully take them down and see if they were holding anything. Well, they did that
0: in the clubs too. It was like arrest first question later. They would just go in Mm -hmm. and take people.
1: Yeah. So during this time, the police department was going after uh, Peter Gation. Rudy strongly believed Peter was overseeing a massive drug ring in his clubs. Peter was under investigation from 1996 to 1998. The this was at this point too, they like clo- they had to close the clubs yeah. while he was under investigation. The case was dismissed because the DEA couldn't prove that Peter Gation made any money from the drug deals, which everyone will stand by and say that he had abs- that he absolutely did not ask or take any money from them and he that he basically just made enough from the clubs. Well, there's a reason for that. Mm-hmm. I know. I'll explain it when you're done. Okay. <laughs> Another major reason his case was dismissed was because the government's witnesses were so thoroughly unreliable. Yeah. <laughs> um, they used some of the club kids as informants, but some of them were high on heroin at the time, saying <laughs> <laughs> saying that they would help with the investigation because the cops would pay for their drugs. So wow. there was um, – Michael Alec also talks about this, where the police came – And we're talking to him, and he was just like, I'm just – I'm, like, sick right now. Like, you know, he was coming off of heroin. Mm -hmm. Like, I I can't – I can't have a conversation with anybody. Like, I can't go and talk to – Peter, because mm-hmm. he's not going to talk to me like this. And they were like, well, what do you need? And he's like, I have to go see my dealer. And they were like, we'll drive you there. And they drove him there. He got stuff. And oh, my God. And they, like, took a walk around the block while he got high. And then he was like, and every time I felt like that, they just brought me to my dealer. Oh, nice. And I've heard th- things like that before. So a lot of that was happening in the case, which was causing a lot of unreliableness. And then there were other informants that they had, which were happy to help. But then they were also like exaggerators, so they couldn't tell yeah. if like what part they were exaggerating. Because they were like, I can substantiate this part, but not that part. So now I don't know.
0: Michael <laughs> leaned heavy on that when we're I swear to god we're gonna get to the murder. Um when his friends would talk about like the crime. Mm-hmm. He'd be like, Well they all they all bullshit all the time. You mm-hmm. can't believe a damn thing they say. Yeah. Which yeah.
1: in this situation was not true. But anyway. <laughs> So in nineteen ninety eight, Gation was acquitted and was left with a hu- with huge legal fees. In nineteen ninety nine, he pleaded guilty to tax evasion and was sentenced to a fine of a hundred and six million and along with five years probation. Um, he also spent, uh, I think like half a year in jail or something. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. for that. And then in 2001, so at this point he thought that like, okay, I'll just have to do this and then I'll be fine and like get back to work. But um, in 2001, he sold the limelight to a real estate developer and thought he could start anew. But then finally in 2003, the government eventually deported him back to Canada. They He's just better like, off. Yeah. Um, today, Gation lives in Toronto and limelight has become a mall and it calls itself the Festival of Shops. Well.
0: Wow! <laughs> So visit the Festival of Shops yeah. and soak in some of the weird history. So it's interesting to see, to hear your, like, limelight side of the history. And now I have more of Michael's side of this. Okay. And also, Peter Gaisha, another weird fact about him, he produced um, Chaz Palminteri's one-man show, A Bronx Tale, and yes. then the subsequent movie starring Robert De Niro based on it. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he's a... The, an odd man. So when Michael was hired to work to promote Limelight, he was given complete carte blanche. Peter Gation said, you can do whatever you want. Make this successful. And the first thing Michael did was to put drug dealers on the payroll. So they absolutely were paid to sell drugs in the club, mm-hmm. but Peter Gation didn't do it. Right. It was under Michael's tier of mm-hmm. management. So that's kind of how he probably got around saying it was it was his thing. It wasn't. And there are a lot of people that will testify that Peter Gatian didn't, didn't know as much right. and that he was really lambasted by Rudy Giuliani's mm-hmm. government. And in some ways he was, but also he's not as innocent as a lot of people. Oh, of,
1: well, of course. Once, but <laughs> he kept his hands clean. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so suddenly drug use was completely rampant and uncontrolled. Michael even threw his mother a birthday party at the tunnel and served her ecstasy-laced cocktails. As the 80s gave way to the 90s, the club kids became less of a joyful movement of art and expression and more a lurid expression of the horrors of addiction. One by one, they were dying of overdoses and suicide at clubs, and they became breeding grounds for habitual drug use and public sex acts. Michael's parties took another turn toward the bazaar as he began the incorporation of what appeared to be mascot costumes Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently he stole them. One of them was a big chicken that was Clara the carefree chicken, and she was always manned by Ernie Glam. Um, yeah, one of the she was, comes on the the talk shows. Yep, yeah, it's just a person in a chicken suit. And uh, another one was Icy the polar bear, and they would just kind of like roam around the club, causing shenanigans, handing out drugs and drink tickets, and occasionally Clara would swing on a swing way above the crowd at <laughs> limelight. I know. So Michael also threw outlaw parties that he would arrange and that would crop up in, like, a subway car or, most famously, in a McDonald's. Oh, And once he stole an entire city bus to throw a party on, these parties would materialize out of nowhere. So he would organize tons of people, say, this place at this time, and they would party until the cops came. And usually that was, like, maybe a half an hour. But as soon as the cops came, they would scatter.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So they didn't last long, but, man, did they draw attention. They would spend all night getting ready for Oh, yeah. The
0: <laughs> Planning this event, too. Was they were very meticulously planned to get yeah. all those people at, like, one Midtown McDonald's for a yeah. little while. <laughs> and around this time, Michael also threw one of his most infamous series of parties called The Blood Feast, an event which paid homage to his love of violent horror movies. And a lot of people like to um, talk about how much Michael loved horror movies. A lot of us love horror movies. It doesn't make you a murderer. I would have loved this party. I would have, too. And this event— it was where he had all his staff or his paid club kids were dressed in grotesque and bloody costumes like they had just been, like, massacred. They were doused in buckets of theatrical blood, probably theatrical blood, we hope. And they had, like, actual animal organs,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is not illegal. You can buy a liver at ShopRite, but it's still pretty gross. I remember um, there's a clip from the original Party Monster documentary where James St. James talks about it being, like, a festering stench. Yeah. Which is pretty gross. And the poster for these parties is really famous, and it's the Party Monster poster. And it depicts Michael being dismembered by another club kid with a hammer. Mm-hmm. And the bottom has, a, like, a blood spain, like, spatter type that says, no legs, Ugh. which is, like, a pretty direct um, damning foreshadowing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then this is where we finally meet Andre Angel Melendez, a tall, tough Colombian drug dealer who always wore large feathered wings. In the early 90s, Angel met Peter Gation and Michael Allig and was hired to be a drug dealer at Gation's clubs. Now, there are some reports that say he was hired directly by Peter Gation to deal drugs in the clubs. And there are some that say he only dealt with Michael. Mm -hmm. So we can choose to believe whichever we would like. It's, It's probably part of column A, part of column B. Angel is described in very two distinct fashions. Some people say he was a really sweet guy. He just really wanted to fit in. He hung around a lot. And just never could really kind of click with people, but he really wanted to. He was very overeager, and he was accepted because he had drugs. And other people say he was really kind of a tough asshole, for lack of a better terminology. A lot of people are like, he was mean. He wasn't very nice, and he
1: would, you know, have to
0: hassle people. Because of his occupation as a drug dealer, which I'm sure was true.
1: I feel like I wonder if he started off sweet and then like yeah. that last year was just angry because nobody was paying him ever.
0: But also different – you're you're different with different
1: people. Right. So yeah.
0: maybe to that's people true. he wanted to be friends with, he was very kind. And to people he had to shake down for money, he was mean.
1: Yeah. I could see that.
0: That's a dangerous life and he was living it. And that's how he was making his living. So I, I'm not here to place judgment on a victim mm-hmm. ever. But he lived in that life, and that's what he did. So, I mean, he's, you can see him on some talk shows, mm-hmm. which is eerie. Yeah. Um, to say the least, there are a lot. We'll post pictures of him. He's a menacing figure. I will say that. But I think the general consensus was that what he wanted more than anything was to be part of this family of club kid celebrities, but he never could really break his way into being one of them. Mm-hmm. A lot of them call him a poser. But, but they would make him feel like he wasn't because he had drugs. Right. And they were nice to him until he asked them to pay for their drugs. Or God forbid he ran out. And he had every right to be angry about that situation and to feel used because they were using him. Angel was born on May 1st, 1971 in Columbia and immigrated to the United States when he was 8 years old. He was just 24 when he died. In a lot of places, I see Angel described, like I said, as a poser and a wannabe who was only permitted to hang around because he was on drugs. But, like, again, I don't see that as entirely his fault because desperation to fit in isn't a unique trait. A lot of 20-year-olds have that, especially when economic inequity has pushed you into dealing drugs as a way of life. Angel had come to the club scene from a decidedly harder section of the LGBTQ nightlife, which could also have affected his personality. He came from the hardcore punk rock set that used to hang around at CBGBs and leather bars. He wasn't as fluffy as the club kids. <laughs> and they noticed. By 1996, Michael and his roommate, Robert Freeze Riggs, were predominantly buying their drugs from Angel and had, like most of the club kids, moved on from party drugs like MDMA and ketamine to straight-up heroin. By the buckets. Michael was hemorrhaging money. And as you mentioned, Mayor Giuliani had begun his campaign to end the nightlife scene and promote, quote, quality of life in New York City. Giuliani wanted the clubs gone. And so, as we talked about, a police presence had become very common. On March 17, 1996, at around 10 a.m., Angel went to Michael and Freeze's apartment to collect on a substantial drug debt Michael had. Now, it had been a while since Michael or the club had paid him. And so I guess he did come to Michael for the money from the club. So mm-hmm. he'd be like, I dealt drugs on whatever night. I handed out all this money, all these pills. I mean, pay me for the pills. So that's the situation that they had going on. Um, but, but they hadn't been paying him. And he was angry, and rightfully so. You can't be owing people huge amounts of money and expect them to be fine with it. Right. When Angel arrived, Freeze was in his bedroom, and Michael answered the door. Angel asked for payment, and Michael told him that he did not have it and an argument began. Freeze reports in his eventual confession, which I'll post the full his full confession, that the argument grew loud and he heard the sound of slamming around and glass breaking, which provoked Freeze to come out of his bedroom, to which he saw Angel grabbing Michael by the neck and shaking him and slamming him into walls and screaming, you better give me my money or I'll break your neck. Michael looked at Freeze and yelled, help me, and Freeze reacted fast by grabbing a hammer that he saw laying around and smacked Angel on the back of the head with it. But Angel kept fighting because he's like a tough dude. He wasn't like a little guy. And now he was grabbing for the hammer. In the subsequent fight that continued, Freeze hit Angel in the head with the hammer two more times before Angel eventually, quote, went down. Now, if we stopped this event right here, Michael is a victim, whose friend acted in his defense to save his life. And everybody involved in this crime says this. Freeze would have probably gotten some minor jail time for assault or attempted murder, and Michael would have walked away probably scot-free. Mm-hmm. If it ended there. But it didn't. Freeze walked out of the room briefly because he was probably pretty traumatized. Right. And when he returned, he found Michael standing over Angel pouring drain cleaner into his mouth with a cracked syringe under on the floor underfoot. Freeze yelled that Angel was already out and he wanted to know what the hell Michael thought he was doing and that he should stop, but Michael wouldn't stop. After pouring the drain cleaner into his mouth, Michael screamed that Freeze had to help him. So, not knowing what else to do, he assisted Michael in wrapping duct tape around his mouth. Then, Michael used, depending on who is recounting this at any point in time, either a pillowcase or a sweatshirt, it doesn't really matter, to suffocate Angel until he was dead. Again, he was unconscious, and they could have left left and called the police, but they didn't. So at that point, Freeze leaves the room again after he has them taped up. When he comes back in, Angel is completely undressed down to his underwear, and Michael is asking Freeze for help putting the body in his bathtub, which Freeze assists him with. So they put the body in the tub, then the pair close the bathroom door, Took some of Angel's drugs and did them and hoped that the whole thing would just disappear on its own. You know, like children hiding a stain they made on a rug, except for it's not a fucking stain, it's a man's life. This is where I started to get real mad at him. Right. Well, he's
1: so high right now. And, and other things. But yes, yeah. a lot
0: of it is drugs. He will try to say it's only drugs.
1: No, it's, it's but a i don't mix believe everything oh yeah but that's yeah
0: the pair after this the pair like leave the apartment for a little while and michael actually says in interviews that he expected angel to be gone when they came back
1: he, again i mean yeah he was just strung out at that point yeah. like
0: he's on a lot of heroin but also he thinks he's an invincible type teenager like that's a kid mentality mm-hmm. a kid would expect that solution to just happen on its own they don't understand the finality of death. They don't understand the implications of their actions. They are impulsive to a fault because they don't get it. Right. And I think that there was some of that going on with him too because Freeze doesn't say those things. Mm-mm. Freeze is like, no, we we fucking killed a guy, and he's like, well, it's gonna be fine. It's not gonna be fine. And they were both on heroin. So again, this is my interpretation and the interpretation of others. And you can have your own at will. But that just kind of proves how out of touch from reality he was at this point. Did he try to keep as quiet as possible and go into hiding? Nope. Michael told everyone he could get his hands on precisely what happened. Except here's the thing. Because Michael made a life for himself based on wild exaggerations, performance art, and rumors, no one believed him. The club kids lived a life of, quote, no one can be offended no matter how outrageous the statement. Michael was quoted as saying, and I quote, I was in that circle where anything was tolerated. You could say the worst things about people and no one was ever offended. It's the alibi of the terminal teenager. Never take anything seriously. Disparage as intolerant anyone who has the gall to complain. And this certainly applied to his treatment of this murder. Michael even went so far as to make jokes about it on a television appearance. And they don't list the precise one in which he did it, but it Mm would have been after 1996. His catchphrase at the time was, what do I have to do to get some attention? Kill someone? (sighs) I guess. Guess so. When asked later why he went around telling everyone he had committed murder, Michael claimed it was to spread around the burden of the truth because if his friends knew what had been done, it couldn't be entirely his responsibility anymore. Someone would have to tell the authorities to take care of that, and it didn't necessarily have to be him, except for, nope, because they didn't believe him. For the previous 12 years, Michael had acted with no one else's interest in mind but his own. Nothing was ever his responsibility. If you go back and look at this, it seems shiny and nice and fun when we're talking about it, but then if you cast another lens on it, he didn't take responsible for anything. A lot of club owners said that he had no concept of financial things. He'd be like, let's have a water slide inside. He would never, he just was insane ideas all the time. And they just worked for a while. And then that attitude stopped working. He also, like, had no concern for the damage any of his actions might be doing to anybody else or anybody else's property or anybody else's mental state or their possible future drug addiction or their financial ruin that he might be raining down upon them. So no one should really be surprised by his actions following the killing. And yet, we all are. They're shocking. Approximately five to seven days after the murder, because heroin addicts can't possibly keep track of time, so we only get five to seven days. The body began to smell. Now, Michael, at this, in this frame of time, had still been entertaining friends in his apartment. Now, he will deny from prison interviews that he had a party, and I'm not saying that he had a party, but a lot of his friends said that they were just there, like that mm-hmm. his apartment was obviously going to be a gathering place because he needed to be the center of attention. James St. James said that he had been in his apartment, and he was like, it really smells in here. And Michael was like, "Oh, you know, that's why we can't use the bathroom right now because the sewage system is all backed up." And James was just like, "Oh yeah, okay." W- why would you ever think it was not that? You would never choose to disbelieve someone, right? Or to, to think that.
1: Then, them like, suspects. where were they going to the bathroom?
0: I think he was so wild at that time that if he was like, "I'm not using my bathroom," you'd be like, "Yeah, all right."
1: I know. He probably lived somewhere
0: kind of squalid and awful anyway. I don't think his apartment was great. Yeah. So, you know, it did it start to smell, like I said, and when the, like, excuses he thought, like, weren't enough, he went in and put Drano and baking soda all over the body in an attempt to cover up the smell. But nothing is going to cover up the smell of seven days of human decomposition. That's just not going to happen. And Michael claims that at this point in time he was just in very strong denial, which I can almost believe. The shock and trauma of taking a life can do terrible and strange things to people. But then why is
1: he talking about the crime to everybody he sees? I think he just got lazy. He was like, I just don't feel like dealing with this. He just
0: won like detention and knew, because he's very smart, no matter how many drugs he's on, that the best way to cover it up was just to claim responsibility. Because everyone Mm. thought it was another ridiculous publicity stunt.
1: Right. It's
0: not like he hadn't done anything that level ridiculous before. Mm Mm-hmm. So, but you cannot admit to something and then deny it simultaneously. You pick, pick a lane, one or the other. What once seemed to be impulsive and eccentric behavior on his part is now really showing its sociopathic face. Social climbing and a complete and utter lack of empathy are two completely different things, but in appearance, they can often be bedfellows. When baking soda and Drano didn't work, obviously, nothing is going to work on that situation, Michael and Freeze decided they had to do something about the body. So Freeze went to Macy's and purchased three sharp knives and acquired a large cardboard television box. Michael agreed to dismember the body. Now Michael claims that he, didn't, he, he did enough heroin before doing this that he thought he would either die and then not have to worry about it or he would just dissociate completely because he was so high and the act itself wouldn't be as repulsive as it would normally be. And of course it was the latter. So he went to the bathroom and removed both of Angel's legs, wrapped them in garbage bags, and put them in separate duffel bags. Michael says when he talks about this act that he did it in a few quick swipes while covering his eyes in a matter of seconds.
1: <laughs> that's how strung out he was. Yeah,
0: unless you're an experienced Civil War surgeon, that's not how legs work. Uh-uh. Removing them is a lengthy and purposeful action. The torso, head, and arms still attached were then packed into the large box and taped up. The pair carried their parcels down to the curb and hailed a taxi. Now, their packages had to smell. There's no way they didn't, but the cab driver didn't ask any questions. Honestly, this was a New York City cab driver and probably not the worst thing he'd ever seen. They had to look so dirty, too, at this point. I'm sure. They were all, like, fucked up on drugs, and they had a body, and they, like, ugh, I mean, like, we all know kids that got into partying too hard, and they're yeah. not big showers. No. So, the cab driver took them. Michael said he inexplicably asked the cab driver to take him to the tunnel. And I guess there's a spot where you can access the river, like, right next to it. Okay. Because they, like, got out and walked down. And they asked the cab driver to help them bring their packages to the riverbank. And they say the cab driver helped them. But... I don't know that I believe that because this guy would have been discovered at some point in time. He's a New York City cab driver. They would have found out somehow who this was. Right. Especially if it was in, like, broad daylight and people saw – I don't know. I just feel like if that was the case, there would be a statement from this guy somewhere, and there isn't. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe he's just that anonymous and there were no cameras in them back then. So they take the – Bags to the riverbank and the duffel bags float out and sink or whatever. But they made one fatal error with the box. Because an industrial box like the one they had is lined with cork to prevent damage from the piece that's probably inside Mm. of it. And cork floats. And they had sealed the box tightly with the air inside. So when they put the box in the river, it floated away like a little boat. Oh, boy. Uh Uh-huh. And it went sailing down the Hudson, eventually to catch the tail end of a tropical storm that had hit the next night, and it traveled all the way to Staten Island, which is where we began our journey today. In the months that followed, Michael made no bones about what he did. He laid out the facts that he killed Angel. He talked about the drain killer. He talked about the dismemberment and the disposal of the body to anyone who would listen. He talked details. He wasn't just like, I killed a man. He was like, I killed a man. I was with Freeze. He killed him with a hammer. I suffocated him. I put drain on his mouth. I put him in the tub. And then I cut him up. Put him in the Hudson. What does it take? But as I mentioned before, no one believed him. That is until the story caught the ear of Village Voice journalist Michael Musto, who began to put the pieces together. As a matter of fact, Angel had been missing for quite some time. And people started to realize that too. Like, he's not around. Where is that guy? But it also wasn't uncommon for people in that lifestyle to just leave. Or a lot of them said they figured he OD'd. Right. Because that's what was happening to so many of them. Mm-hmm. Michael Musto was the first to report on uh, Michael Alex firing from the Lime Night by owner Peter Gation and to allude to um, the fact that there was a person missing from Michael Alex's world. And then he published a blind item, which I think is like a, an anonymous thing, mm-hmm. describing the buzz on the exact details of the crime that had happened. And it got picked up by the New York Post's Page Six gossip column the story took on even more prominence and got the vague attention of the New York City Police Department. But as of its publication in September, they had still not questioned Michael, even though Angel's family had begun to very publicly look for him. And this was a huge point of contention. As you mentioned, Michael Alec was an informant of the police's, and they didn't want to investigate him. Right. They wanted him to report on Peter Gation. That's what they wanted.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And so they were ignoring very vivid claims that he had mm-hmm.
1: murdered someone. That was really funny in the limelight because it was like they brought Michael Allig in and then it was like not long after where they were like, oh, he killed somebody. Yeah, he <laughs> yeah, definitely they did. They were like, I don't know if we can use them. They're like, well, maybe we can use this as leverage to get more information. And this is why all of the facts became unreliable. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. He for sure killed somebody. But Angel's family was like, we have – we know who did it. Why are you not doing anything? Right. And they were horrified. Also, in some accounts, they say that nobody was looking for Angel. Like, they acted like he had no family caring about him. So that's how I heard it. I didn't know that he had no, his, his family. No, his family came eventually. It took a little while because, okay. like I said, like, it wasn't uncommon to not hear from him.
0: Right. But they did come into the city to start looking for him. And his brother would speak out at, like, press conferences and mm-hmm. stuff. And the club kids saw this. They mm-hmm. saw his family. And that's when they were like <gasps> – Right. Shit happened. This is this is real life. Mm-hmm. He's he's dead and Michael did it because they hadn't given any credence to the fact that, like, oh, someone's mourning his loss. They were like, he, right. that guy OD'd in a gutter or something happened, whatever. But it, it was his family that really shook them out of okay. what they were kind of putting on. And... After that, the Village Voice continued to relentlessly run articles on the crime and Michael's possible involvement in the week that followed. So, really, Michael Mustow and the Village Voice are responsible
1: for his apprehension, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty remarkable. Didn't my is this just in the movie? Because I know Michael had he had his own magazine for a little while. Didn't he write like a short little piece about the murder? Like he didn't use his name. Or Angel's name, but he it's just like wrote about it, about like a story that happened.
0: Possible, yeah, because they did have their own little like photocopy indie publication, mm-hmm. which a lot of people back then had because print was still a thing. Yeah. I didn't read any like direct stories about it, but for sure, that's yeah. 100% something that would have happened because he talked about it all the right. time. Eventually, and completely by chance, one of Michael Musto's articles reached a Staten Island police officer. An officer read, an article that had recounted the whole crime and what they suspected had happened to Angel and what they suspected Michael had done. And he made a connection to a body that had washed up near Miller Field back in March. He's like, three blows to the head, legs cut off. You know, like the, the, the tape, the stuff. It's like, it's this guy. This is who mm-hmm. this is. Which must have been like a crazy revelation
1: to have. <laughs> um, Can you imagine being that guy? <gasps> I know. And like just reading it in an article today that it would be there in a second. Yeah. You know. Uh-huh. <laughs> so by
0: this time, it was also November 2nd of 1996. Wow. So a lot of time had passed. And they just had this body unidentified in the morgue. And a Staten Island coroner was then able to positively identify the body as Andre Angel Melendez. I think they brought in family to identify him, which is I tragic. But I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. And his cause of death was identified as exactly as it had been described so many times by Michael. And a warrant was immediately put out for his and Freeze's arrest. Freeze was arrested and confessed the second the cop got him. The cops, in an interview in one of the documentaries, said, I put his hand, my hand on his shoulder. He turned around and said, thank God you got me. I can't live with this anymore. And confessed everything. I feel bad for him. Because he did some crazy shit while he was on drugs, but he, he goes on to – I'll get to him in a minute. Yeah. Michael, however, had fled to Tom's River, New Jersey – thanks, Michael <laughs> – with his boyfriend, who was a drug dealer, of course, and was then consequently apprehended in a hotel room by authorities. And the cop that went and got him said that he actually felt sorry for him because he was in such severe heroin withdrawal when he picked him up that he was just, like, shaking and throwing up all over the back of the car. Mm-hmm. Michael claimed that he killed Angel in self-defense. And actually, at first, he denied it. At first, he was like, I didn't do that. And they were like, yeah, you did that. And then um, Freeze wrote out a four-page detailed confession. He was like, yes, I, I did do that. <laughs> and he claimed that he helped dispose of the body in a panic. Prosecutors were hesitant to charge Michael with first-degree murder because they still wanted him to testify against Peter Gation. Oh, no. Which is nuts. Who had been arrested for allowing drugs to be sold in nightclubs, which is a far smaller offense. Mm-hmm. This guy murdered a man in cold blood, and you're still looking to get the owner of a nightclub on some drug charges? Right. Your priorities are fucked up. Um, so they eventually offer Michael and Fries a plea deal, a sentence of 10 to 20 years, if they accept the lesser charge of manslaughter. So on October 1st, 1997, they both pleaded guilty and were sentenced to 10 to 20 years. Robert Riggs ended up serving, that's Freeze, 14 years in prison and was released in 2010. He, um, while he was in school, while he was in um, jail, got, like, a serious education and became a doctoral candidate in incarceration studies and went on to be a victim advocate, author, and lecturer. Wow. Yeah, so he really turned his life around and did something with his experiences. That's good. You can't say that of everyone, but, like, the system seemed to have worked for him. Right. And he was very remorseful and immediately helpful to the police. Right.
1: Good for him. Michael Alec served 17
0: years and was released in May of 2014 after being denied parole several times due to his drug use. Now, he also claimed that he was, like, miserably abused and raped in prison. But I don't know how much of anything he says we can believe. Mm-hmm. After his release, Michael tried to revitalize his career through the use of YouTube and Twitter. You can check it out. It's all there. But it never really took off. No one really ever forgot that he murdered and dismembered another man in a drug-addled frenzy. That still happened. That just shows that he's still somewhat that guy. Where he's like, I can still be famous. It's fine. Yeah. It's not fine. Eventually, this year on Christmas Day, he died of a heroin overdose in his apartment and was found by his boyfriend. Many people have speculated whether Michael snapped because of the drug use or whether he truly just wondered what it felt like to kill someone and fancied himself invincible like the, quote, terminal teenager he claimed to be. You know, anything about a teenager's brain, they wouldn't understand the consequences of that. Yeah. That's who he identified with. Some psychologists have diagnosed him with, quote, histrionic personality disorder, one I hadn't run across in the past. Hmm. Yeah. Which very simply put, it just means that the person who has it will do literally anything, good or bad or terrifying, for attention. And they don't understand… The consequences of that, they just all, they're singularly focused on attention, but no amount of it will ever be enough. And nothing they do, no amount of love they receive will ever be big or grand or more
1: enough for them. Mm-hmm. Which sounds pretty right. <laughs> yeah. And that's what everyone would say to him all the time. Yeah. Nothing's ever enough.
0: Oh, like a scene in Party Monster where he's like with James St. James sitting on the couch. Or he's laying on the floor mm-hmm. and he's sitting on the couch. He's like petting his head. He's like, I just want someone to love me. And James says, There's not enough love in the whole wide world for you. Mm-hmm. There isn't. <laughs> and that, that was totally true. And they're precious in that scene. Ugh, they are. <gasps> I could watch them dance to Two of Hearts forever. <laughs> <laughs> so good. And that about wraps us up on the Club Kids and Michael Alec. After, after Michael's arrest, the club kids swiftly declined. The clubs were brought down by the Giuliani administration. Peter Gation was arrested and deported. And they were all persona non grata. No one wanted anything to do with them anymore mm-hmm. because they had been associated with a murderer. Right. And that pretty much dissolved their current – what would the the life they were living. They were no longer like mm. party professional partiers. But as I mentioned before, a lot of them went on to live – other artistic lives, the woman who – Well, some of them
1: were older at that point too. Yeah. So they – and they had already had – like they were kind of establishing a mm-hmm. career. So those ones yeah. I think were able to keep going.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, um I was telling you that when – so when Peter Gation was done being investigated and was let go, mm-hmm. when he tried to reopen his club again, he actually hired a um, – a like police officer or somebody to like work in his club to help with like control the drug use and to basically to stop the drug use. So he had full run of how people got in there. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's kind of the start of how, how I know walking into a club and it's (laughs) not as aggressive as this now, but basically at the, so for like the next two years before Peter was like, I just can't do this anymore and like sold it. Um, People were being – you'd be completely frisked down. You'd have to take off your shoes. It was like going to TLA – like TSA, like the TLA center. (laughs) (laughs) No, TSA. But um, it was fully like that. Uh, They would be searching through everything, and you would have to have two forms of IDs. They started scanning the IDs at this point and all of this other stuff. So no one underage was getting in. Nobody was walking in with drugs. There were no drug dealers inside. So – That was where Peter was like nobody is going to – like one, it already feels uncomfortable even getting Mm -hmm. and being in line and watching this happen Mm -hmm. that no one feels safe. And then now you're inside and it's a totally different atmosphere. But that's where the hip-hop night started happening. Oh, okay. And that was where it wasn't like drug users coming in. Mm -hmm. It was just more drinkers. So you'd come out and they would all be drunk and that was where it was also still kind of bad in the area. But that was like the hip-hop club scene then. Versus like the techno so
0: I actually went to the tunnel in March I know, of 1996 this is wild I never put it together before now because I was like I was 15 I went with my two also irresponsible friends and their young mom a young mom took us <laughs> and and got us fake IDs that were just copies of college IDs. This is so wild. I lived with like my picture. Someone probably took their college ID, cut out my pi- my like little picture that I gave them from like my high mm-hmm. school. I had a high school ID because I went to a school that needed them and just put it on top and photocopied that shit in yeah. color and well, then laminated it. It used to be it.
1: so wacky the IDs. Mine it was never nothing.
0: Mine was like yeah. this fake ID was like I kept it forever. It was ridiculous looking. Yeah. And I went To the door, it didn't even – it wasn't even a back on it. It was nuts. And I was dressed in, like, almost nothing. I had on, like, you know, a little tube top and a little skirt or something (laughs) and big, tall, high heels and tons of makeup. My mom is going to love hearing this. I lived fine. It's fine. (laughs) Um, And the guy at the door was, like, this giant, terrifying bouncer, but there was no, uh, like, security. And he looked at the ID, and he was like, what is this? And I said, it's a college ID. And he looked at me and he went, okay. And I just went in. <laughs> Which made, <laughs> makes, makes me feel really pretty. Yeah. Because they were like, well, we only let, like, in the documentary, they were like, we let people in who would add to the environment right. if they weren't, like, mm-hmm. paying a certain thing or whatever. So, yeah. And it was mayhem. It was mayhem. There were people fucking around all over the place.
1: This is so wild. Everywhere.
0: Like, sitting on platforms, oh. dancing. I wasn't brought into any, like, secret rooms. I didn't drink a drop. I didn't do any drugs. I swear. I would tell you if I did. Um, I just danced. And I ended up making out with some guy, and I felt like the queen of everything. I was like, I'm amazing. <laughs> and I, <laughs> And then, then we left. We left when, like, it was really late. It was probably, like, 3.30 in the morning because that's when that stuff <sighs> happened. And um, I had one of my friends did like go off somewhere
1: mm-hmm. and
0: she said she was given a pill nothing she never said anything bad happened she said she had a great time and she was just pretty euphoric and happy i'm imagining so hear it that was, kids <laughs> in, in just in like <laughs> my specific inst- know, although yes. who the hell knows maybe something terrible happened to her and she didn't want to talk about it I don't know. Most women don't want to talk about that. She could have been sexually assaulted, and we would never have known if she Mm -hmm. didn't tell us. We weren't with her. She separated from us. Mm -hmm. We couldn't find her for a while. We're like, where's that – I'm not going to say her name. Where's that girl? And after a while, she just emerged. She was like, oh, someone took me somewhere else. And we're like, no. Oh, okay. But it was wild. I wasn't there on, like, a theme night. I wasn't cool enough to be there on, like, a Mm -hmm. Wednesday or whatever it was. It was probably Friday
1: or Saturday. Oh, in one of the uh one of the daytime shows, a mm-hmm. woman stood up and she was probably like late thirties, oh, like my. might have been a mom too. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, so I have gone to Limelight before, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't on a night, like I didn't see many of you dressed up like this. Yeah. And so it sounded like she was going to say something negative, like mm-hmm. how it was and all the drugs. Because r- right before that, it was a bunch of talk about drugs and alcohol. Oh, my God. And so – but then she goes, what night is it that you guys dress up like this? I want to come back. I want to go then." <laughs> and they were like, Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny.
0: Yeah, I remember it being a phenomenon. I also remember kids I went to high school with that went to raves, which is like a yeah. subset of this culture. And That's that was what I
1: remember, the raves. Drug-fueled for yeah. sure. I remember, so my brother is four and a half years older than me and he got into techno Mm -hmm. and it was around this time and then just a couple of years later. So we had all known how terrible these clubs could be and like the Rudy Giuliani stuff. So when my brother got into techno and like anything with raving, I was like, my brother is like, he's on drugs and he's (laughs) wild and so many crazy things are happening and there's just neon lights everywhere. (laughs) And he's just glow sticking all over town. Oh, my God. (laughs) I don't. Um, I've never
0: been to a rave. That's fine. I don't need to go. No. <laughs> as far as I know, they were they were way more like tranced out dancing, yeah. and the club environments was more like people could be naked. They're probably fucking somewhere. Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. Everybody was like hopped up on some sort of hormonal situation. Yeah, uh, like I wasn't there to get fucked up. I was there to like because I wanted to boys to think I was pretty or something. Mm. Right. <laughs> um. But yeah, I mean nothing. I didn't have like a like an experience that was negative in any way. Mm-hmm. It certainly wasn't not scary. Mm-hmm. Though I will say that people like when you walked past people they just touched you. Right. They just would like graze you as you went past them. It was like a
1: sea of hands. Mhm. That's what it felt like going to murmur in Atlantic City for oh, yeah. a while. I hated going. Mm. I went once on a dance floor and I was like I can I don't know that I could ever walk through here again.
0: I was so Young and dumb that I was, just like attention, right? (laughs) Yeah, Mm -hmm. nothing was registering as bad as like horrible or invasive to me because I thought Mm -hmm. it was like, well, these people think I'm pretty. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that speaks volumes to of my my own personal psyche, but you know what? That's not what we're here for. So, so yeah. Wow, this is a hard toast to toast. There
1: are a lot of people
0: involved in this one.
1: Hmm. I know. Um, Maybe just to like the general vibe of like what the club kids were supposed to be.
0: I want to give mine to Michael Musto. Okay, because he um was so uh, is so prominent still, right? Um, and was such a, a good journalist and was responsible f- for solving this crime really, mm-hmm. and um, and for any attention put on it and for the light shed on the underbelly of it, and conversely on the good side of it, right? That um. Yeah, I think without him, we wouldn't know a lot of what we know now and wouldn't okay. have been exposed to a lot of that culture. Uh, and we have um, a new patron this week. Cheers to our new patron, Jess Isaacson. Hey, Jess. Yes. us? <laughs> Cheers to you. Thank you so much. You are moving us forward and we love you for it. Mm-hmm. She's a best fiend forever. Ooh, hooray. <laughs> so now you're part of the Cool Kids Club. What? You guys could be part of the Cool Kids Club too. Club Kids, where it's at. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, we'll post a whole lot of pictures because th- uh, this just requires so much illustration. Yeah, for sure. Um, and please go and do all of the other watching and reading that you can get your hands on. You will be sucked into this. I know that it took us a while to get to the crime today, but I just – I think the world they lived in was so fascinating and so worth talking about, and I don't think that you s- truly can see what the crime was unless you see where it came from. Yeah. So, so that's my thought today. Great. And if we were desperate to spend our 15 minutes in the limelight, we would be dead.
1: Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Pod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.
0: Chicks from New Jersey are hot.